Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Amen. Thank you, Alex. For those of you who don't know, my name is Wade. I'm on staff here. I'm not the lead pastor. Our lead pastor is much taller than I am. He's probably much more many things than I am. I'm not going to get into that, though. Um, so we're going to go to Luke 24, if you'll open your Bibles with me. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke for something like two years now, I think. Um, and all of it has been profitable. But today, I think, uh, as Alex sort of intimated, I think this is probably the grandest or most uh, important truth in creation, which is that Jesus Christ right now is resurrected And in that resurrection body is standing at the right hand of the Father and is interceding for us, his saints. And I can tell you practically what that means for me just right now. Uh, There's something my family is uh, wrestling with or or trying to see happen that is on the other side of the world. And I have zero control over it. I, I can affect this thing that we want to happen as much as I can affect what Joe Biden eats for breakfast tomorrow. I have zero control over it. And so when we pray, and we've been praying every night for it, and sometimes a couple of times a day, one of the things I've tried to remind my kids, but then also remind myself and my wife, as I say it out loud over and over again, is that Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, and that right now he is listening to daddy pray, and he is taking that prayer to God the Father. So this is much more powerful and much more impactful because Jesus is raised than if I had a direct contact at the United Nations. That's why this matters. So let's read it together, and I hope that it does for you what it has done in me. Luke 24, we're going to read verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened." This is very simple today. The title of this is Christ the Victor Over Death and Sin, and I'm just going to walk you through that title. Christ is the victor, and he is the victor over death and sin. So let me start with the fact that he is victorious. His resurrection proves that he is victorious. Angels announce this thing. Angels. 
And I know if you grew up like me, sort of in broad evangelicalism, you probably have in your mind this picture of angels as cute and fuzzy and made of flannel. If you watch Touched by an Angel, they're all women, and they all have sweet falsetto voices, right? In, in 2 Kings, an angel descends with more power in his fist than a hydrogen bomb has. He kills 185,000 Assyrians overnight because Hezekiah prayed. So that's what descends here and announces to the, to the women that Christ has been raised. That's proof of how victorious and how glorious Christ is. You know how you find out like two weeks in advance of president coming to town that they're going to shut down some of I-71 or 275 and how annoying it is? This, this is like heavenly foreshadowing of who Christ really is. It's a newsflash to the women that Jesus Christ is God and is God's son and is victorious in a way that we need him to be. Let me show you 1 Peter 2, or 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12, the attitude of angels towards what Christ has accomplished here on the cross and in his resurrection. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12 says, concerning this salvation, the salvation proclaimed to us in the gospel of Luke, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he, the Spirit of Christ, predicted the sufferings of Christ, that's what Alex preached last week, and the subsequent glories, that's what I'm preaching to you this week. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. These heavenly cosmic warriors want to see this the way I would want to go back in time and see the American soldiers plant the flag on Omaha Beach. Or the way I would want to go back in time and see Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms tell Eck, my conscience is captive to the word of God. They're looking at this like, this is when it happens. This is when he's, a, watch, watch, he's about to do it. And then they proclaim it to the women with that aura of excitement. And the women then remember. They remember his words that he told them, just like the angels tell them to, that he was going to be handed over to sinful men. He was going to be crucified, a humiliating death that Alex walked us through last week, a humiliating and excruciating death. Good reminder that excruciating actually comes from the word cross. This death, though, was predestined. Here's how the apostles put it in the Gospel of Acts. The apostles, as they're praying, verses 24 through 28 of chapter 4, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, that means Lord in control of everything, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, his Christos, his Christ. The answer is going to be in two verses. Why did they do this? Why did they assemble themselves? Why did evil men crucify him? Why was he almost naked, left on a cross, humiliated? Why did it happen? Verses 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, Jews and Romans, religious authorities and governing authorities, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. The mob was there too. To do, verse 28, 
whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God ordained all of this. He's the author of this story, the real story that you're in right now, that I'm in. He is writing it. And that's what these women remember as they come to the tomb. The angels, don't don't you remember? He told you this was going to happen. He's not some mere religious teacher. He's not some hippie sage wandering through the countryside, offering people candy, religious candy. He he told you what was going to happen. He was going to be handed over to the religious authorities. He was going to be crucified and he was going to be raised. And now it's happened. He's victorious. Remember also that before his death, Jesus Christ had nowhere to lay his head, Matthew 8, 20. That during his trial, he had no one to defend him, John 18, 19 through 27. On the cross, he had nowhere to hide in his open shame. And then at his burial, he didn't even have his own tomb, Luke 23, 50 through 54. He came as a servant and was led to the slaughter like a lamb, opening not his mouth and laid in the ground with the wicked. That's Isaiah 53, 7 through 9. This is the life and death that our Messiah took on for us. But his humiliation and his lowliness and all of that that I just told you about was not what the Jewish leaders thought it was. Was there looking up at him in the cross, they say, he saved others, let him save himself if he's the chosen one of God, the Christ. They think this is them squashing his ministry. They think his humiliation is the end of Christianity, the end of Christ. They figured that they just put some hillbilly backwoods Galilean cult leader in a grave. And now his silly bumpkin followers can go back to their compound in Capernaum. And we can have our city back and our temple back. But that is not who they laid in the grave. He's not Theudas or Judas the Galilean, two insurrectionists that are mentioned in Acts 5 as potential, you know, maybe Jesus was like this. He's not David Koresh. He's not that Heaven's Gate cult leader guy. What they didn't understand or were possibly willfully and stubbornly ignorant of is the fact that who they had laid in the tomb was the God who decided what their eye colors would be, whether they'd be left-handed or right-handed. God was in the tomb. I'm sure, so the Jews had this whole plan here, we're going to crucify him and Pilate played his part too, we're going to put him in the tomb there and then we're going to get guards to guard it and that's the end of that. And I'm sure those guards looked really cute with their little shiny hats and their swords and their spears when those two angels descended, the way that my son looks cute, my two-year-old son when he dresses up like an army man. But let me read to you what Matthew 28, 2 through 4 says about the moment that at least one of these two angels descended. Matthew 28, verses 2 through 4, behold, there was a great earthquake for... What caused the earthquake? An angel of the Lord descended from heaven. This angel is so powerful that his mere coming down, his walking down the heavenly stairs caused an earthquake. Descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone, and I love this, and sat on it. This is ours now. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Yeah, I'll bet you they did. I'll bet you they did. This is who was in the tomb. This is who the angels came to announce, a victorious king. Let me read to you Jude verses 5 through 6, just about the power and authority of the one who has just been resurrected. 
I want, you to, I want to remind you, Jude says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. Pause. Jesus destroyed those who did not believe. This is for free. The Old Testament does not describe a different God. Who destroyed those who would not believe? The mean, caricaturized God of the Old Testament, who then, after he took a Xanax in the New Testament, chilled out a little bit. Jesus destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, I love this, he, Jesus, has kept these rebel angels in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. The one who was resurrected in that tomb has locked up rebel angels the way I lock up my cats in the basement. <laughs> these are angels. I just told you how powerful angels are. They killed 101, killed 185,000 soldiers in a night, the world's most powerful empire at the time, Assyria. And Jesus keeps these things locked up until he says their time is up. He has taken sin, death, shame, and wrath upon himself, and now he has risen victorious over all his enemies, and he has all authority in heaven and in Cincinnati and in Campbell County and in Boone County and in Washington, D.C., and in the heart of that red storm on Jupiter and everywhere else you can think of. He was delivered into the hands of sinful men, and that's as it had to be because that's what he came to do, but he has also been raised because that's who he is. All right, his victory. His victory over death. Let me start here. I want to make a pitch for why your body matters and why what you do with dead bodies matter and why we care about bodies as Christians. Why do these women come with aromatic spices to the tomb? Have you thought about this? Why not just a memorial service back at Mary's and Martha's house in Bethany where we're all staying? Why the preoccupation with taking literal herbs to his literal body? I think it's the same reason why in Genesis 23, the book of Genesis, the author Moses gives us a whole chapter about Abram negotiating for a burial place for Sarah. Why an entire chapter in Genesis dedicated to him finding a place to bury his wife's body? Why did Jacob and Joseph, towards the end of Genesis demand promises from their family. Do not bury us in Egypt. Each of them, independent of one another, said, make sure you carry us back to the promised land and bury us there. And, come to think of it, why do Jacob and Joseph say, bury me and not bury my body? And the answer is that bodies are not in the biblical worldview and in the world God actually made. Where's my, you know, all our med school students, you can probably resonate with this. Bodies matter. They are not merely husks or pods or shells. They matter. It's true that when we die, we depart and are immediately with Christ. But then once we're with Christ, we await what? The resurrection. We await, Paul puts it this way in Philippians 3.21, the one who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. By the power that enables him to subject all rulers and all authority to himself, he is going to give Max Inniger a glorious body. Sorry, I didn't mean to, it's just you're the first person I saw, Max, right as I said that. 
Dead Christians are awaiting that right now. They are looking forward to the day when Christ's unlimited awesome power grants his people glorious bodies. The same Paul who, read what I just, who wrote what I just read you from verse 21 of chapter three writes a few verses earlier in 11, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that by any means possible I may attain merely heaven. Why does he say resurrection from the dead? Why does he say resurrection from the dead? Because that's what we're waiting. I can't wait to be in heaven, but once I'm in heaven, I will not be able to wait for the resurrection from the dead. These women came to anoint Jesus, not merely a husk. You know when cicadas came out a couple of years ago? If there's any out-of-town people here, stay for the next 15 years and then move. (laughs) Because in that 17th year, man, it's like a plague from the book of Exodus. And when they're gone, all that is left all over your yard and your dog eats them until he throws up is these shells. It's not a cicada, it's a shell. But when we bury somebody, it is true that at that moment, that Christian that we bury, if they're with the Lord, is is with Christ. And yet, Christ is going to resurrect the body. Paul spends an entire chapter practically talking about this in 1 Corinthians 15. The word, John 1:14, the word, which is Jesus, the Son of God, right? The word became what? Flesh. John 1:14. Not merely, doesn't just say became a man. It says became flesh. And that was the word, the Son of God's becoming an enfleshed creature to identify with us because we are enfleshed creatures. It was not the Son of God just like zipping himself up in some suit that we all happen to be wearing just so he wouldn't look out of place. He was becoming what we are, except without sin. When, Lord willing, I hug my Christian grandfather after the resurrection of the saints, I'm not going to be hugging a mere shadow any more than in verses 40 through 43. At the end of this chapter, you're going to see Jesus, not a shadow, eating broiled fish. Why does the Bible record that? Records multiple times of Jesus eating in his resurrected body. Why? Let me read to you. This is a, this is a great book, uh, 18th, 19th century book about the life of Jesus by a man named Alfred Edersheim. I want to read to you just a sentence or two of what he says about the resurrection, our resurrection, which is what Jesus attained for us. He says, With what body shall we rise, like or unlike the past, meaning our past? Assuredly, most like, our bodies will then, at the final resurrection, be true, for the soul will body itself forth according to its past history, not only impress itself, as now on the features, but express itself, so that a man may be known by what he is and as what he is. Thus, in this respect also has the resurrection a moral aspect and is the completion of the history of mankind and of each man. The end of my biography, and it's an ending that never stops, is when I'll be raised to be like Christ. London Baptist Confession, a Reformed Baptist, uh, particular Baptist confession from hundreds of years ago, puts it this way, chapter 31, paragraph 3, the bodies of the unjust shall, these are non-Christians, shall, by the power of Christ, be raised to dishonor the bodies of the just, those who know Christ, who have been forgiven, by his spirit unto honor. And Christians, the just, made conformable to his own glorious body. One of the earliest Christian heresies was Gnosticism. 
right? Most of you have probably at least heard of Gnosticism. And it was a complex system, and most of it is immaterial to what I'm trying to tell you today. But the part that is material to what I'm trying to tell you today is they despised flesh and matter and dirt. This was gross. They wanted an antiseptic world of pure ideas and immaterial persons. Someday, all of this stuff that got created in some sort of act of rebellion prehistory will be gone. And finally, we'll just be, I don't know, shades floating around in the blackness able to communicate spirit to spirit. That is not, that is not what the God of the Bible has created. In Genesis 1 and 2, he made a good world filled with dirt and bodies and sand and skin and breeze and bubbles, aromatic spices, beavers, palm trees. He decided to do that. He made it. Yes, it's true. Our answer's in Genesis, people. I just saw them. It's true. It's true. I love AIG for that reason. When we go to the museum, one of my favorite things, the Creation Museum, one of my favorite things to talk about with our kids is how all of this stuff was great and it's still pretty good, but now it's groaning under the weight of sin and death. But someday God is going to come back and death is not going to get the last word. He's going to inaugurate a new heavens and a new earth. Bodies matter because human beings matter. And there is no such thing as an immaterial human. Right now, as I say this to you, the Apostle Paul is with Christ and yet is awaiting his resurrection. And the reason he's awaiting his resurrection is that he's a human. Have you ever stopped to wonder why kids are so afraid of ghosts? And ghosts aren't real, okay? But the idea of ghosts, it's because that thing looks like a person, but it can't be a person. Because a person has flesh. Kids know deep down, this is how we're supposed to be. We're supposed to have bodies. Jesus defeated death because bodies matter. And no body in human history matters more than this one that housed Joseph's tomb for a couple of nights. I love the way the angels ask the question. Let me read it to you again. There's, there's such tenderness and affection in these heavenly warriors who scare everybody. Every time an angel shows up in the Bible, they have to say, don't be afraid. I'm not here to kill you. But there's such tenderness in these angels as they say, why do you seek the living among the dead? I mean, they know the answer. What is the, what is the purpose of that rhetorical question? They're fishing in those women's hearts for their affection. Why were you here? And why don't you remember that he said he was going to be raised? These women came to see what death and the Romans and their own Jewish leaders had taken from them. And these angels tenderly say, why are you here to look for him in a grave? Let me show you in John 20, Mary Magdalene's experience. So at some point, Mary Magdalene evidently became separated from the other women because, I say that because, John 20 records a, an, an occurrence, and experience that only she has. And begins in verse 2, she goes to the tomb, she doesn't see the angels, she just sees no body, and she goes back and tells Peter and John, John come running, they see no body. Then they leave, and she's alone. This might be, I don't know, one of the five most moving little sections of scripture, for my money, in the Bible. I'm going to read it to you, it's only eight verses or so, 11 through 18. Mary's there alone. All she knows is... Apparently, or at least all she can remember, is that her rabbi's body is not in the tomb. This happens, beginning in verse 11. 
But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stood to look, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Again, crying so much over the body, so moved that she can't find the body. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. First of all, he just says, who are you seeking? That's the same question he asks in John 1 when Andrew and an unnamed disciple who had been working with John the Baptist, they start following this guy, Yeshua of Nazareth, because John the Baptist has said, look, here he is, this is the guy. So they start following him. And Jesus turns around and he says to Andrew and the guy who I think might be John, but the Bible says is just an unnamed disciple of John the Baptist at the time. Jesus turns around to them and just says, who are you seeking? Or it can be translated, what are you looking for? But it's the same words here, basically. Who are you looking for? He knows. So what's he doing? He's doing the same thing the angels are doing. He's exposing their love for Christ. And he's helping them to see. I've been looking for you the whole time, my whole life. I've been looking for you. I didn't know it till you just asked me, but now I know I was looking for you. And now I know I wasn't just looking for my rabboni. I was looking for my Lord. And I love that she gets to experience this by herself. And I really hope it played this way out in real life. I just, there's a part of me that would love it if this is how it went. If she had one of those jars of burial spices. And she had to carry that sucker back completely filled. I guess I'm not going to need these today. It's so beautiful. Let me read to you one bit from Edersheim here again on this woman, on Mary Magdalene. He says this, this depth and agony of love, he says about Mary when she's weeping at the tomb, looking for the body, thinking Jesus is the gardener. This depth and agony of love, which made the Magdalene forget even the restraints of a Jewish woman's intercourse with a stranger, was the key that opened the lips of Jesus. A moment's pause And he spake her name in those well-remembered accents that had first unbound her from sevenfold demoniac power and had called her into a new life. 
It was as another unbinding, another call into a new life. She had not known his appearance, just as the others did not know him at first. So unlike and yet so like was the glorified body to that which they had known. But she could not mistake the voice, especially when it spake to her and spake her name. I hope I get an experience somewhat like that when I see my risen Lord for the first time. Mary saw our Lord alive, not merely resurrected in some spiritual sense. There was a body that Jesus said, don't cling to, meaning she could have clung to it. But he said, don't. The word who became flesh is not among the dead. He is not in tomb. He will not see decay. He is glorious and unharmable and ascendant and beautiful right now with the Father. The foot that crushed the head of the serpent is not a phantom foot. It's got muscle and skin and bone. He tells Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Put your hand in my side and believe. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's proof that death will not get the last word. It will not undo what God did on the sixth day of creation. There will be breath in Adam's lungs again. Death will not get the last word. The thing that Jesus wept over in John eleven thirty five 35, outside Lazarus's tomb, by the way, just another thing here to think through. Why does he weep outside Lazarus's tomb? A, he knows he's gonna resurrect him, right? And B, he knows Lazarus is with God and will be in heaven like that. Human life is short. Lazarus is going to be in heaven before you know it. He weeps because of what death is, how much he hates it. The thing he wept over in John eleven thirty five, 35, he has defeated here in Luke 24. Death was outplayed by Jesus Christ. It was outgunned, delegitimized, evicted. That tomb is the period in death's eulogy. He's victorious over death. Second thing, final thing he's victorious over. He's victorious over your sin. You may not connect the resurrection with Christ's victory over your sin and your forgiveness, but you should, and I'm going to show you that you should in a couple of places. Let me start with Acts 13, verses 32 through 39. Paul, his first missionary journey, is taking his friend Barnabas, his colleague Barnabas, or as the people in Lystra and Derby would call him, Zeus. He's taking Barnabas with him, and they reach this Antioch of Pisidia, and they go to the synagogue, and to the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the synagogue, here's what the Apostle Paul says in Acts 13, beginning in verse 32. We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, all the Old Testament promise of reconciliation and forgiveness and eternal life, all of it he fulfilled by, to us their children, by what? Raising Jesus That's how he fulfilled the promise, by raising Jesus. As also it's written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him, Jesus, from the dead, no more to return to corruption, decay, his body breaking apart, death. He, the the David in the Old Testament, has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one seek corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. Forgiveness of sins does not come through David. David's body is dust now. 
In Paul's day, it's a thousand years before. The body's already gone. But he whom God raised up, verse 37, did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, because Jesus did not decay, let it be known to you, therefore, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Translation, how do you know you're forgiven for your sins? Because those burial spices went unused. Because the total occupancy of that tomb was zero. Unless you count angels. That's how you know your sins are forgiven. When I was, earlier this week, I was praying and thinking, and I do this a lot. I walk around this area, and a lot of times I end up on Stratford. And in 2005, 2006, I was living in 2350 Stratford. And I was a total heathen. And I walk by that house sometimes, and it still looks basically the same. And I hate myself. And I'm so, like, how, the, how did God not snuff me out of existence for fornication and drunkenness and lying and gossip and disobedience to parents and all manner of sin, idolatry, just absolute filth in my life? And if Satan or my own flesh starts to whisper to me, you don't know you're forgiven. How do you know, Wade? That's a lot of stuff you did. There's probably a record of it somewhere. Actually, I know there's at least one record. I got an open container ticket once. I was a bad kid. If those whispers come, the answer, at least one answer the Bible gives me is, Jesus is raised. And God did not raise him for no purpose. It was not just a magic trick. Hey, Pharisees, you think you can beat me? Voila! Abracadabra. It's proof of the forgiveness of sins. It's the fulfillment of the promise that was given to us, the people of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, the apostle Paul says, if Christ is not raised, your faith is futile and you are in your sins. You can know you're forgiven, Christian, if you're a Christian, because Christ is raised if we are still dead in our sins, I'm going to do the Ecclesiastes thing here for a minute. Hypothetical. If we are still dead in our sins, none of this matters. None of it. Absolutely none. We are to be most of all men pitied. Two services, doesn't matter. The homeschool co-op, doesn't matter. Outreach team, doesn't matter. You being faithful to your spouse, doesn't matter if we are dead in our sins. But because Jesus Christ has been raised and there was nothing in that tomb but angels and echoes and dead air, because of that, everything we do matters. My record of debt has been nailed to his cross. It used to hold his body and now it holds my record of debt against God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means I'm forgiven and if you're in Christ, you're forgiven and you're alive in him and everything you do has eternal significance. How can Peter know that he's forgiven of his cowardice the night of Jesus' arrest? You want to talk about guilt. That ain't walking down Stratford and thinking about when you were drunk. Peter turned tail on the Messiah after claiming, if everyone else deserts you, I will not. He was humiliated. How can he know he's forgiven? I'll show you how he can know. The same way Paul can know. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 24. This is Paul's answer. This is not Wade's answer. 
Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say, the same thing some of our liberal Christians or liberal scholars say today, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? If there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, everything I've said from this pulpit is worthless. Every prayer I've ever prayed is the squawkings of a hypocrite if he has not been raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're dead. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, notice by the way, he doesn't do if again. This one ain't hypothetical. This one's in fact It's more certain that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead than that Abraham Lincoln was our 16th president. For all I know, maybe the Illuminati, that's a conspiracy. They just wrote into the history books. I don't believe in the Illuminati, but I'm just saying. This is the most certain thing in the universe. Christ was raised from the dead. I am telling you, and the apostle Paul is telling you right now, I don't care if you like it or don't like it, believe it or disbelieve it, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits. There are many more fruits to come. This orchard's going to be full. For as by a man came by death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. I was going to stop there. Let me read two more verses. For he must reign. Jesus Christ is reigning right now from the era of the apostles till now until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Who are his enemies? Verse 26, the last enemy, the ultimate enemy, the final enemy to be destroyed is death. You don't hate death enough. You don't, and I don't. Jesus wept. And that verse where he was deeply moved in John 11, where it says he was deeply moved, that root word can sometimes be used to refer to a horse that's stamping the ground and snorting before it charges. Jesus despises death. And because he's been raised from the dead, I can know that it's defeated. All right, I'm gonna close with this. Just a word of exhortation and then an encouragement. The exhortation is this. For Christians... I am pleading with you, live in light of your resurrection. Not in light of your retirement, not in light of your next vacation, not in light of the bill that you can't pay. And we are all doing that too much. And you're not fooling me. And I'm not fooling you. We are all doing this. We get so unimaginably entangled and caught up in the cares of this life. And I know some of us are better at it than others, but none of us has reached maturity, full maturity in this yet. Live in light of your resurrection. Don't make big life decisions 
based merely on how much it will cost you in your checking account. Or I'm really tired right now, so I don't think I can do that. Or merely in light of what it'll get you now here in this life. You're going to be dead in like 10 minutes. And then you're going to be with Christ if you're a Christian. And then you're going to be awaiting the resurrection. And then you're going to have a body that never gets migraines again. No cataracts. No back pain. And at that moment, at that moment, the good decisions that you made, the godly decisions that you made, you're going to be grateful for. And like me, there'll be decisions that you made from a carnal spirit that you're going to regret. I'm exhorting you, live in light of that resurrection. It's real. It's coming fast for non-Christians. This one's more sober. So I need you to hear it if, you're, if you are not yet born again. I don't care if you think you're born again or you're not. I'm talking to you if you're not born again. If your name is not in the book of life, I'm talking to you. If you've not been resurrected or brought to faith in Christ, I'm talking to you. You will be raised at the end of all things. And you will stand before the great white throne of Jesus, from which everyone flees and tries to hide in the book of Revelation. It is much more terrible than any atomic blast or lightning strike or tornado or hurricane or tsunami or flash flood. You will be resurrected to stand in front of that if you do not repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. And you will be cast in that body into the lake of fire where death will be tormented and there is no sleep day and night forever. And I don't want it for you. And no Christian in this room wants it for you. We love you. And we want you to turn to Jesus and be saved. The woman I just read to you about, Mary Magdalene, had seven demons in her. Matthew, one of his disciples, was a tax collector, which was a traitor, a turncoat against his people. He was a snitch against God's people. The apostle Paul murdered Christians and tortured them, trying to get them to blaspheme the name. God delights. It makes him happy to save bad men and bad women. Repent and believe in Jesus. And then my encouragement, and this is the last thing I'll say. My encouragement is for Christians, which I hope and pray is everyone in this room who's old enough to believe in the Lord Jesus. Um, we've had people die in this church. You will have people die that you love. If they are in Christ, you are not merely going to see them again. Because Christ is the procurement and the first fruits of the resurrection, you're going to shake their hand again. You're going to hug them again. Two men have good shadows over my entire life. One is my father and the other is his father. His father was born in 1921. He died in 2013. And I think about him, I don't know, probably every other day. My kids and I went to Indianapolis just to touch his school a couple weeks ago drive by his old childhood house. About twice a month, I get this out and I look in it because it's just stuff of his. Dan Monahan, I thought of you when I got this one out. This is his full picture of his battalion in World War II. And I hold it sometimes and I'll think, he touched this. And that's, that may sound superstitious to some of you, right? But it's not. 
It's not any superstitious any more than Abram going back and visiting that cave in Machpelah or Jacob and Joseph wanting to be buried back there was superstitious. I love this thing. But what I love more than knowing that he touched it once is that I'm going to touch him again. And there's a baby that Sarah and I never got to hold that we're going to meet. And you have Christians that you know who have died. And if you don't, you're going to. And we are all going to be worshiping that Lord right now who has holes in his hands, twin holes in his hands and a hole in his side. We're going to be worshiping him together and we're going to be able to embrace each other in bodies on a new earth. I hope that makes you happy. I hope it makes you want to worship him because it should do both of those things. Pray with me. Father, because Lord Jesus was born of a virgin, died, suffered and died under Pontius Pilate and Herod, because he was raised on the third day, because he ascended and because he is now with you interceding for the saints, because of Jesus, the Christ, our prayers matter. We can be forgiven of sins and know we're forgiven of sins. We have hope in life and in death, in every trial. Because of Jesus the Christ, we're happy. And we have much to tell the world about and much to delight in. Prepare us to meet you soon, Lord, because we each will. In Jesus' name, amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.